Hi, I'm Clive Tilsley, football commentator, ex-Bluetick on Twitter. Welcome to Behind the Dugout podcast. I'm Rachel Downey. Join myself and Troy Townsend each week when we go behind the scenes to look at the world of football. We will chat to those involved in the beautiful game or those who simply just love football. This is the Behind the Dugout podcast, powered by Paramex Digital. Before we even begin, you two know each other rather well. Do you want to go or do I want to go? You <laughs> go. About 103 years ago, <laughs> uh-huh. yeah, yeah. Troy and I decided that we were going to sort out racism within football. We're not doing very well, are we, Troy? Well, yeah. I remember you came to our office, uh, Barbican, above the Pizza Express on the first time that we met, and uh, a colleague of mine said, it's Clive, T- yeah, that's Clive Tilsley. We were in a meeting for about an hour. When I came out, he was nowhere to be seen. And they said, yeah, he's gone for the last hour. He was downstairs waiting for you to come downstairs so he could actually catch you all by himself. And I thought to myself, (laughs) yeah, don't worry about work. Clive's in town. Um, But it just shows the enormity of of you at the time on some of the young people that we had around. And we've remained... Is it friends? Do we say friends? I'm going to say friends. I don't like you, but yeah. Yeah. I think... I think we're friends. We I like your son. I think he's really cool. He's an intelligent footballer, Rachel. I know that may sound like a bit of a contradiction. <laughs> yeah, but works. Andros has worked with us. Yeah. I still call ITV us. I'm not quite sure why. <laughs> IT, I, ITV used Andros at the World Cup that he helped England get to yeah. um, in Brazil. And uh, he was in rehab then and he was training every day in order to get himself fit for the new season. He was as professional as he could be. But he's a bright guy. He's yeah. got all the brains in the Townsend family. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. They had to go somewhere, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly, Miss <laughs> Miss Troy. Oh um, dear, can we move on, please? Yeah, yeah. Oh, get the, get it off of we'll me. We'll come back there. We'll come back there. Um, Clive, you let's start right from the beginning. Your what came first, first of all? Because I know you obviously went to University of of Trent. Um, was it the love of sport, the love of football, or you just wanted wanted to be in broadcasting? I wanted to be a football commentator from early teens. Uh, Parents are not always the best historians, particularly of only children like me. Mm. Um, But my parents would have told you that... I think I wasn't alone in chasing a ball around the back garden commentating to myself, but I was actually serious about it. And I was never going to be good enough to play the game um, that I did love. My father gave me a love for and he was actually um, involved with our local club which was Bury. Mm. when I came back um, from the nursing home as it was to the house it was the wife of the Bury manager who brought my mum back because they were our next door neighbours so I was kind of inside track with football from the very first day of, of my life and um, I think that was part of the reason that I had an ambition to not just watch football, but to work in and around football. And um, I fell under the spell of the the great, uh, initially radio commentators, TV commentators that I Mm. sort of grew up with in the late 60s and and 1970s. And I wanted to be them, yeah. Who was it that sticks out in your mind that you wanted to... Well, I suppose we look on everything with the benefit of hindsight. And my mentor uh, in my profession, the guy that taught me 98% of what I know about football commentary was a commentator, oddly a boxing commentator, and not a boxing commentator that I 
necessarily looked upon as my favourite, but the late Reg Gutteridge mm. was wonderful to me uh, mm. on a personal and professional level. Um, so even though he, he wasn't the person that gave me the appetite, I, honestly, I could reel off a list of 20 of those in various sports. Um, Reg, Reg was the person who started to assemble um, a vision of what a football commentator should be for me. I was already in, I got my first break and I was doing local radio and I moved into regional television. Mm. But if if there's a kind of broadcast journalist in there anywhere, it was Reg that gave me that, that, that training. Um, and it was very much on the job and it was tough love training. <laughs> it was cruel to be kind training. <laughs> there were more... Uh, criticisms than 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 days when he, he he felt I'd done a good job, but what a man, and and he was wonderful for me. Mm. Well, I still I still want to know why why commentary. What was it about commentary that sparked you to feel that you wanted to go on that journey in this industry? I think it's probably as much a part of the wonder of a football match as anything other than the the people who are um, intrinsically involved, the players and, and, and managers. Um, inevitably, most of our football experiences, even if we've been fortunate enough to go and watch a lot of football, and you and I have, but actually the majority of our football experiences and memories, therefore, are of, of watching a great game on television. And whilst I don't think, strangely, the commentator is as big a part of that experience now, mainly because of the changes in the way that media is consumed. Mm. Um, in, in my most impressionable years, the commentary was a huge part of it. And um, it is the biggest privilege in, uh, of, of the many, and I've been so, so lucky to do the job that I always wanted to do for as long as I have to the, you know, the height or the level that I have. But uh, the biggest privilege is to be part of people's memories of a of an occasion you know if 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 somebody watched a champions league final uh, or an england game and can actually remember something that you said i'd like to even better um that's lovely you yeah. know just to be a little part of that story yeah. yeah you're invited into people's homes aren't you you're you know invited into people's worlds when you commentate when you're on tv when you're on radio as we are right now yeah. you know we're on people's commutes we are um, on their morning run or whatever, um, or, yeah, maybe taking a break from sitting looking at a laptop all day. Um, but they can turn us off at any moment. And so the respect that you must have for the audience is, again, one of the things that Reg taught me. The audience is king and queen. Identify your audience and broadcast to them. Don't broadcast for your own vanity. Don't do it the way that you think mm. you should be doing it. Ask yourself what the audience is. And it's a different audience for a World Cup semi-final to 30 million people on terrestrial television to what it is to a tea time Europa League game between two mainland European teams where maybe there's 30,000 hardcore football <laughs> nuts watching. Reg used to say you, you, there's an argument for explaining the offside law during that World Cup semi-final because you, you, want to, you don't want to talk about the heads of your audience. Again, he would refer to that maths class that we've all sat in where you've got 30 minutes in and you haven't understood a damn word of it. <laughs> uh, the commentary shouldn't be like that. It should be inclusive. It should be embracing. It should welcome people in. 
And so there's nothing worse really than um, watching you. You love your mo motorsport. Mm. And I really feel for the Grand Prix commentators. I got to know Martin Brundle quite well, mm. strangely. Um, I mean, I, I don't really understand the DRS zone. I've got an idea what it is, but I don't really understand it. Now, the petrol heads watching would go berserk if the commentator explained every half hour what the DRS mm. zone is. True. So there has to be a level of assumed knowledge. But it's quite dangerous because I'd switch off a little bit when I hear those kind of technical terms because I, yeah. I feel frozen out. Mm. That's really well said. And it's about any... But also you want everyone to enjoy what you're what you're speaking about. So I guess that's the difference between a good commentator and bad commentator is if you've got an audience that's like, no, I don't I don't understand, you've lost me, then that's not a good commentator. One thing I wanted to ask you, you um work for Radio City in Liverpool mm. and you were heavily involved in the city's coverage of the aftermath of Hillsborough. What was that like? Well, um I should explain I wasn't at that game. Mm. Um I was at the a 1995 European Cup final in Belgium where I travelled out to commentate on a game for local radio and finished up counting bodies. I'd never seen a body in my life before a dead body. Um, I saw them piled up one on top of another and I was counting them at one stage. And um, that experience um, has never left me. Um, Liverpool Football Club, who were wonderful to me, um, uh, and it was a, a marvellous time to be around what was probably the best club team in the world at the time, and a very well-run club. But they had to try to protect their reputation in the 24 hours following uh, the deaths, and they took us to the terracing the following morning, us, the journalists, the media, to show us the, the disrepair of the Heisel Stadium the, the, uh, and the, all the loose pieces of concrete, how flimsy the fencing was and so on and so forth. And, and you could, there was, I mean, this wouldn't happen today, but there were still personal effects littered around mm -hmm. on, the, on, on the terracing. And um, that was a hooligan era. And in my mind, that terrible tragedy was caused essentially by football hooliganism. Mm -hmm. um, when I was driving back from the other semi-final played um, in 89, Everton were involved. And so I commentated at Villa Park that day. And as I drove back up the M6 to Merseyside, I heard what I thought was the same story unfolding. And, um, you know, famously, infamously, the Sun newspaper, Brian Clough, saw it as exactly the same story. And when I got home, this, this was before I had a mobile phone, um, my boss at Radio City, um, who was a really good friend, said, you're in tomorrow morning for a a phone-in. We're doing a phone-in from eight o'clock and I want you to host it. And I said, no, Tony. I said, they've done it again. Mm. I said, I don't want any part of it. I wasn't there, but I know what happened. Mm. So they broke the gates down. They've stormed in and everybody's got crushed and I don't want any part of it. He said, well, you're in. And when I walked through the doors of the old Radio City studios in Stanley Street, Liverpool, uh, at half past seven that next morning, doing what I was told to do, reluctantly, um, sceptically, there was a guy there, I don't know him to this day, and he had his ticket from the match. And uh, it, I don't know if, if the modern ticket is still perforated, or they, yeah, they tear yeah. a bit off at the turnstile. He had the whole ticket. And he said, they opened the gates, Clive. They just opened the gates. And we just walked in. And that, I mean, 
the, I did the phone in. It, it ran for two hours. The Taylor report was written that morning. All, all of the accounts of what had happened tallied. They were all the same tragic story of lambs to the slaughter. This was nothing whatsoever to do with hooliganism. And it was apparent that morning. The, the next morning it was apparent. Mm. It's taken 20 years yeah. To, for, for, for that to be recognised. It was obvious then that yeah. this was a completely different story, mm. completely different narrative. And I um, was obviously involved in the reporting of the aftermath. And about, um, I don't know, maybe three, four days later, I was waiting outside in the old car park there behind the main stand at Anfield with all of the other media gathered waiting for the next press conference, you know, waiting for the next photographs of all the, the, the incredible floral tribute on the pitch and on the cot. And a message came out from security, um, Kenny wants to see you. And K Kenny Dalglish was player and manager at the time and was, again, a good friend. Um, but <laughs> I assumed I'd done something wrong. I presumed that, you know, I was about to get a rollicking for something. And I walked into the reception area and Kenny was, uh, Kenny and Marina were just extraordinary through mm -hmm. the whole two, three weeks of that followed. I think he went to nearly every funeral. And... Um, as I walked in, I, I looked at him rather sheepishly, thinking what's coming my way. And he said, Ian Whelan? I said, what? He said, Ian Whelan. He says, a young, young guy who wanted to be a commentator. You showed him around Radio City a couple of weeks ago. He used to write to you and you wrote back to him. I said, yeah, maybe. He said, his family want to see you. Oh. And I said, oh, okay. And Ian um, was 16 and, and went to a football match and didn't come home. Come home yeah. And he wanted to be me. He didn't want to be a player. He was like me, he couldn't play well enough. He wanted to be me, he wanted to do my job. And I'd showed him around the radio station a few weeks earlier and Wilf and Doris's uh, parents and his sister were there. And this was in the players' lounge. And these players, I mean, you know, 22, 23, 24 years of age, I'd, you know, I'd been drunk with them. That's what we did <laughs> in, yeah. in the 80s. You went out yeah, for a, yeah. a pint or two together afterwards. They were my mates. They were counselling bereaved families. <laughs> they were sitting there trying to answer questions or listen to people saying, he loved you, he absolutely adored. I mean, the, the, there have been a, the, there been a couple of wonderful dramas made and a, couple, and a, and a documentary um, which is stunning in the, in the wake of Hillsborough. But there, there should be a, a story about the players and how what they had mm. to deal with at that time. And while I was in the players' lounge, I saw somebody my age, a young woman, uh, who I used to see at a nightclub in Birkenhead, Rupert's. I chatted Karen up <laughs> <laughs> unsuccessfully. <laughs> and, yeah, stupid old me, just going to get a cup of tea. What are you doing here, my dad? So that's how small Liverpool was that week. Everybody knew somebody. Um, and it, it has been really in my heart ever since. And... Um, I'm sure we get a little kind of cause weary, you know, we get, um, I talk sometimes about um, creed envy, you know, that we're pushing for yeah. equality in football and stuff and people, yeah, yeah, but what about this and what about that and mm. what about people dying of this and what about people that? And it is that kind of world that we live in, but Hillsborough and some kind of justice, um, mm for the families and uh, of the victims is, I mean, at least football, I think has united from the most part 
to push for this. I and mean, there have been times and we get these stupid chants at games still to this day. Um, honestly, it, it was the slaughter of the innocents and, mm. and we should never lose sight of that. Because it could have been any team. Mm. It's had a massive impact on you, isn't it? Just as you're talking to us, relaying the stories, remembering what happened and the significance of that young man wanting to be you. This has had a massive impact on you still, isn't it? Um, I've had a really lucky life. I haven't, um, you know, touched this wooden head, had too much tragedy around me. And I've got, you know, I've got the job I always wanted to do. I'm very much in love with my wife. I've got, we've got four wonderful grown up things, <laughs> rather loosely called children. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and I've got a recent, reasonable standard of living. And so I, I, weirdly, for a man of 137 years of age now, I've still got my health. You've grown. Um, <laughs> you've aged yeah. 37 years <laughs> since you've been there. Stressful time. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that I, I, those two occasions, um, actually being in the Heisel Stadium, mm. I, I cried quite a lot in the wake of that. Um, and yeah, I, th I think particularly seeing... Wilf and Doris Whelan that day and and Kerry, the sister, and uh, and seeing Karen Chapman. Um, and the, and it it is if if somebody's listening to this and and they probably want to maybe get some kind of touchstone with what that disaster was about. Maybe they're too young to remember. If you go to Anfield or even if you just go online, just look for those two names, Chapman and Whelan. Mm. I knew the daughter of one of them and I'd met the other and mm. um, and he wanted to do what I do. So, and if you talk to, I don't know, Jamie Carragher or anybody, they, they will have a similar story. People they knew that went to a football match and didn't come home. I've got the privilege of going to, well, I go to Anfield and every time I go to Anfield, I do, I spend some time there, um, not knowing any of the names, by mm. the way. But I'm going back in a couple of weeks, so that will be my opportunity yeah. to pay my respects to the two that you've spoken about and everybody else as I continue to do. It's difficult to go anywhere from there, I know. And and um, uh, uh, we must talk about something else uh, because, you, you know, football is wondrous. But you, I'm going to make an admission now, which is kind of a difficult admission for me. Um, in 1985, UEFA decided that the best thing to do was to play the game. Mm. There wasn't social media. There weren't mobile phones. There were an awful lot of people in that stadium who had no idea what had happened. Mm. A lot of people had died, but it wasn't that apparent, strangely. It wasn't like Hillsborough. They weren't, you know, they weren't carrying bodies away on on, plaque, on hoard, advertising hoardings and so on. Um, so they decided to play the game. Really, I think, in, in, in the interest of peace and quiet, um, and it's incredible. I commentated on that game. It was played for real. We'd, we'd look back and say, oh, it didn't matter. And of course it didn't matter mm. in the great scheme of things. But you ask any player who played in it, um, and it was won by a really controversial penalty. That's right, yeah. And I remember getting uh, in the commentary, you know, quite adamant that it shouldn't have been a penalty. I mean... Two and a half hours earlier, I've been counting dead bodies for the first time in my life, but somehow I switched back into commentary mode in the same way that the players... We, it, it left as big an impression on me mm. as Hillsborough did, and I'm sure the players feel the same. You know, Mark Lawrence went to hospital that night with a dislocated shoulder and f finished up being 
they had to give him protection because the, there were mainly Italians or uh, Juventus uh, fans who lived in Brussels who who were killed that night. And um, you know he arrived in his red shirt, yeah. and the news was out by then. Um, but there you go. With somehow, and and I always, you know, there's always this sort of discussion about. Well, these players, you know, they're aware of the boardroom wrangles and they're not sure who's going to own the club. Is that going to affect them on the field tonight? No, it's not. No, as long as they get paid. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it affects them if somebody says, well, by the way, you're not getting you're not paid getting this week. Pay, yeah. But your professional pride and drive and all those things which make these special athletes a little bit different from you and I, all the things that Andros has, which his dad hasn't got, you know, those, <laughs> those I mean, these are the elite in a sport that everybody wants, wants to play. To play. Yeah. Yeah. And it's impossible to tell you how good a really good League Two player has to be mm. in order to make a living out of football compared to the, all of those of us. And so even in the, you know, the, the aftermath, and yeah, it does affect me. Of course it does. Um, f- football kind of conquers all, kind of. Yeah, it's the global language, isn't it? A worldwide language of football. You could mm. be anywhere in the world. And if you don't know what to say to someone, but you want to start a conversation, you can start talking about football. And you can have that that conversation. Um, from working for Radio City, you then worked for the BBC. I did. I went. My my, uh, my ambition was to be a football commentator. If I could have refined that ambition, it would have been to work for BBC yeah, Television. I mean. And uh, that's I, BBC Television had the rights to most of the live sport that I watched as as a young person. And so the iconic commentators of that era. If if it was a big horse race, it was Peter O'Sullivan. If it was uh, a big tennis final, it was Dan Maskell. If it was a big rugby match, it was Bill McLaren. So these guys became the yeah. These became the uh, the. I remember all those names. <laughs> well, by the way, well they yeah they've been commentating on into the seventies and eighties. No no no, one hundred eighty. Yeah, I wanted names. to be them. I yeah. wanted to be them. I uh, and Motti. When when Motti passed uh, quite yeah. recently, um, yeah. I actually tweeted, "I wanted to be John Watson," yeah. you know, and and, and um, I wouldn't have been alone. Uh, you know, I wanted to be him and got to meet and know him and befriend him. So um, you know, I I had the full set in terms of feeling a certain element of loss when when John passed. But um, yeah, they these people were my inspirations, and working for BBC Television was what I most wanted to do. In the summer of 1992, it was a massive summer in football. It was the um, start of the Premier League and the Champions League was just beginning too. So these two institutions, which have, have completely revolutionised the face of, of club football for the whole world, mm. because everybody in the world wants to play in the Champions League. Mm. Um, and the... Wages are paid essentially by the deal that was done with the Premier League with television at the time. So it was a massive summer of change in television. ITV, who I now had an association with by this time, um, had the live rights to top flight football in this country and lost them to Sky and uh, in 92. And BBC got into bed with Sky as uh, kept match of the day, the highlights. So that summer I went to the European finals in Sweden and was coming back to no work. Um, and fortunately, um, the BBC decided to take on an extra commentator 
um, behind John Motson and Barry Davis. Barry Davis yeah. And I was kind of third equal with Tony Gubbard. I used to say it was it was a bit like being um, an 800 or 1500 meter runner at the time. You were only ever running for bronze because <laughs> Cohen over, over would win yeah. gold and silver. And I was Steve Crabbe, you're like, <laughs> I, was, I was running for bronze. But they were great. They were, I had four years at the Beep and they were four really special years. I think because I was a child of commercial radio, I, all my radio experience was with commercial stations. And because my early television experience was with ITV, I think I found it a little different. I, there have been people there who have been at the BBC for 30, 40, 50 years, so I was now working alongside. I think it was a little full of its own importance yeah. at the time. Quite I stuffy back in the yeah, day. Yeah, they, they could buy any rights they wanted yeah. to without really having to justify mm -hmm. it in a commercial market. Um, and, and that was all shaken up in the summer of 92. So I stayed four years at the, at the Beeb and... Um, went back to ITV in 96 when uh, the late great Brian Moore decided that he was going to retire after the 98 World Cup. And, you know, they took me back to kind of understudy him and eventually, thankfully, succeed him. Yeah. So I was going to say, you said about Brian Moore that he was one of the, well, the greatest influence on your commentary career. I think he is in retrospect. I think he, I, I think if John Watson or Barry Davis and Brian Moore were the kind of rival commentators, yeah. ITV, BBC. Do you know, I think I probably preferred Motti of the three okay. um, at that time. But what I think I learned from being around Brian Moore was the importance of a connection with the audience. And my favourite word that I um, use to undergraduates, people that want to be in television, is warmth. I think that the great broadcasters all have warmth. You find edgy broadcasters that come along from time to time, make an impact, but that impact doesn't last long, yeah. as long as if you are watching somebody who you feel you could befriend, somebody who you feel you could sit down and have a pint with. And, and it's that warmth that comes through. And actually, ITV have been very, very fortunate in that their A-list presenters Dermot O'Leary, Bradley Walsh, Declan Donnelly are actually the people that you see on TV. I've been fortunate enough to meet and know those guys and they have wonderful warmth um, coming through the screen, which is difficult just looking through the, you know, the into the camera and little black hole um, in a, a big aircraft hangar of a room, which is a television studio, to talk to somebody as if you are talking to mm. them when you're talking to millions. They can all do that. But if you do get to have a pint with them, they talk to you in this exactly the exactly same, same way. way. They're just they're wonderful communicators. And yeah. communication is so, so important in the 21st century. I agree. Can you remember the first game that you commentated on? The first TV game I commentated on was quite a famous Manchester derby uh, because City beat United 5-1 at Main Road. Right. Um, I waited uh, well, you know, however many years to do commentary on a TV game. And there was a bit of a skirmish in um, the Platte Lane end, away to the commentator's left, after about three or four minutes. And the referee, Neil Midgley, yeah. he took the two teams off the field. And I thought, oh, great. I've <laughs> <laughs> all my life. My moment. For the last five minutes. But thank, thankfully, the Greater Manchester Police sorted them out. And um, the teams came back out. And, yeah, City won a famous victory over United. It was a highlights game, but I, I commentated yeah. on the whole thing. And... Yeah. Um, 
uh, yeah, it was broadcast. That was 1989. 1989. Mm. At what point alongside that did you think you'd kind of made it as a commentator. You're there, you're set, you're part of the furniture. Was there a stage when you realised that? Was there a moment, anything like that? I don't think you dare. Um, mm. I think, uh, I mean, particularly, I suppose now more so than then, the level of scrutiny on your performance, mm. both in terms of the quality of the performance and the content of the performance, and I'm sure we can talk a little bit about the effect that social media has had on all kinds of communication. Um, but it, you are very much a matter of opinion. And so there's always an opportunity for somebody to come along and, you know, become more popular or more popular in the eyes and brain cells of the person who's giving you the work, which has happened to me in the last two or three years, which, you know, does come as a shock to the system. I think um, a lot of people associate me with the 1999 Champions League final. Yeah. And that was 12 months on from Brian's retirement. Mm. It was a very dramatic finale. Uh, Manchester United uh, came back to win the treble uh, with two late goals from the substitutes. And I managed to get the names right and, and add a few, uh, sprinkle a few words around them. <laughs> and I, I think, you know, there were 20 odd million people watching that night. I think... Um, we have a what we it's a technical term in in broadcasting. If I t up, then mm -hmm. I don't think we'd be having this conversation. Yeah, now. yeah. <laughs> I think they'd have found somebody else. <laughs> You're listening to the Behind the Dugout podcast, powered by Paramex Digital. Did you feel nervous? Did you ever get imposter syndrome? Do you ever? Do you know? Is there any? Because you always see, you come across a very calm, uh, natural. I think preparation is a big part of yeah. it. Um, I think. The times I feel nervous are when I've lost some control over the build-up to a game or the or even the commentary position. If the commentary position um, is particularly long way from the field or if it's down one end of the field, if I haven't had time to prepare properly and I do sort of copious notes, we actually sell prints of the notes of the kind of famous games that I've commentated on now on commentarycharts.com. So th those notes are kind of quite famous and that's all part of, um, it's not so much a safety net. I mean, people often say, oh, you've got all that information in case the game goes quite, no, 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 no. It's, it's, it, it's information. It's more like a comfort blanket, really. Mm. It's more like I need to know more about the backdrop to that game than anybody watching or listening. I owe it to them. That's my privilege as a professional, as a, as, a, as a broadcaster. I've got to do that research. But anybody can do the research, how you use it, when you use it. You know, I think some of my brethren should have a little crawler going across the bottom of the screen which says, I've bloody well done this research, you're bloody well going to hear it. <laughs> yes. um, you know, I, I, we're talking a couple of days on from a Champions League semi-final um, at the Etihad I did probably, uh, I would say, an, at least an hour, if not more, preparation on penalty shootouts mm. for that game. Um, you know, who's taken penalties uh, for the clubs, who, which goal, goalkeepers have saved and all that kind of stuff, which way they went and so on. I mean, the chances against any of that being used mm. were probably, I mean, what would be 20, new, 25 to yeah. 1 against yeah. the penalty shootout. Yeah. But you do it and it's there ready 
even when you need it. And you just feel better at kickoff yeah. and knowing it's there and ready. Yeah, that confidence. Yeah. Yeah, comfort blanket. Yeah. <laughs> He's got one, look. Yeah, I do. <laughs> do. Can I... I'm going to put a date in your head. It's not that far ago, long ago. Do you remember a game that you were commentating on on the 25th of March, 2019? 25th of March, 2019. I don't. Um, it's an international. Okay. Uh... No, I don't. Out in Montenegro. Ah, yeah. Okay, well, the game that you're referring to um, sticks in the minds, and so it should, of a lot of people because of the, the racial abuse that several of the black players in the England team experienced mm. um, during that game. I didn't really clock it, if, if I'm honest. Um, there was a, a game... A couple of months later in Bulgaria, yes, right, yeah. where I did clock it, yeah. and and funnily enough, I came back and remember doing um, uh, appearing on the Hawksby and Jacobs show on Talksport with, with you, you uh, mate, yeah. uh, that afternoon, um, because I had been aware of it and I had referred to it and I'd kind of dealt with it. Um, that, that was part of my commentary when um, I said Raheem Sterling, what must be going through his head, mm. I can never know. Um, which was probably um, as close to capturing um, my overall feelings on racism, sexism, homophobia, that I think it's very important, however strongly you feel about it, to recognise you're not a victim yourself. And you, so you can't have the victim's experience. In Montenegro, in the earlier game... Um, uh, we'd been kind of briefed to write prep to, uh, to to know that it was a possibility, but I never heard anything that night. That the there was a commentator on Five Live who apparently did, although there were mixed messages on the night as to actually what we'd what, heard. What, yeah. They had some weird chant which sounded like a boo, mm. um, which actually was <laughs> something completely different. Um, and it wasn't until after the match that. Was it Ashley Young um, reported it to Gareth and Gareth then referred to it in his um, post-match interviews and so on. And then, you know, we were able to deal with it. ITV were able to deal with it as an issue on the night. But, yeah, I came away wondering whether I'd missed anything. Sometimes with the headphones on, you, you don't necessarily hear all of the noises in the stadium. And we definitely put more safeguards in place for the following game in Bulgaria to make sure that if anything was heard, um, it would be reported. I recall something vividly that you said to me, and it may well have been in the wake of that Bulgaria game, that your antennae hears racial abuse yeah. in a way that I wouldn't, yeah. that you're more aware of it yeah. than than I am because of the and experience yeah. yeah yeah so and all of those that's learning Rachel yeah. that's you know that I am convinced to this day that education is the key mm. to breaking down all of these isms because there's no good reason for them <laughs> there's no there's no logic in a group of I don't know 30 Bulgarian youths who presumably don't come into contact with anybody with black or brown skin at any stage in their lives taking some rather random hatred towards people who look differently, you know, to how they do. I mean, it, so 
you should be, we should be able to sit them down and say, what is this? What, <laughs> yeah. Where's this coming from? Why? And then get, and then get to the source and deal with it. But I've listened to quite a lot of content about the Good Friday Agreement in, um, in the last few weeks, you know, the 25th anniversary yeah. of the Good yeah. Friday Agreement, listened to a couple of podcasts and, um, it, in, a, in many ways, the reason that the Good Friday Agreement could happen was that um, both sides of of the argument um, realised that this couldn't go on the way it was. Ho- however strong their convictions, however much Jerry Adams wanted a united Ireland, however much Ian Paisley wanted, you know, a closer association with the United Kingdom, th- there's nothing that they could justify in promoting their cause for all these innocent people to keep dying. And Jerry Adams um, actually referred to it in a couple of interviews. He said, we, we were at war. And I sometimes feel as if you must feel as if you're at war. And all I can say to you as a friend is I, I, I try to understand yeah, that, yeah. but it's not going to get us anywhere. How we got the Good Friday Agreement to solve a really simple basic problem was actually very, very complex. And it involved an awful lot of compromise. Uh, you know, the release of prisoners, mm. the um, the confiscation of, of, of weapons. Um, I mean, some of the conversations. They, and they had to bring outsiders in. Interestingly, you know, Clinton's man, uh, Mitchell, that came in, really helped Tony Blair and Bertie Ahern bring the parties together. They never really met in a room. You know, they, they, they would move in and out of these rooms and put their view and then the other ones would go in. But this negotiation was reached, which would still stick in the throats of probably a lot of people in Northern Ireland, the DUP, but an entire generation of Ulster people have grown up without the war. And um, I'm not sure, it's just struck me in the last couple of weeks whether there's anything that we can learn in our attempts and it and it may be difficult may yeah, become yeah, yeah. very very yeah. difficult for yeah. you as a campaigner yeah. to accept not that you've got to give ground it's not quite the same but i remember saying once publicly and really kind of wishing i hadn't um you remember the incident when raheem uh, got abused at chelsea the three yeah. guys ran down to the front yeah yeah, yeah. and i st- said publicly we need to find those three guys yeah. and we need to sit down and we need to listen to them we need to listen to it from their point of view mm. and you may say oh, well why do we want to hear from them they're absolute hooligans they're racist they're well yeah but there's no logic to their racism yeah. there is nothing in their life unless one of them you know goodness knows one of what them may have, have some terrible backstory yeah. to yeah. tell you but probably they've just well you know it's just kind of how we've grown up Ah, good. Well, now we can get somewhere. Yeah. Now we can sit down and have a conversation. And those conversations are going to be bloody difficult and probably impossible for you. It's probably going to need somebody to come in from the outside and speak to you and then speak to them. I'm a good listener. And then go back. Uh, yeah, well, we need to. And when <laughs> when I first became involved with Kick It Out, uh, I said to you, I know your enemy. I play golf with your enemy. <laughs> you did. I remember that very yeah. well, by the way. I play golf with guys who are racist. They don't think they are. Yeah. They don't know they are. Don't even want to be. It's not a, like a big thing in their lives, but they just are. And just no, maybe I can reach them better than you or Jason Roberts Absolutely. can. Absolutely. I remember that day. I remember that what day. What do you think of that when you hear that, Troy? That I must admit I questioned him in my own mind at the yeah. time. Must. Yeah. Um, and I thought to myself, no, 
But then as you understand what you're fighting against mm. a lot more, you take those words and you kind of think, well, yeah, because obviously the way that you say it is going to be totally different to the way that I'm actually envisaging it. Yeah. And you'll get, Clive would get more joy. And I'll, I'll never forget it because we were, we were at Wembley in, before England versus Italy and you allowed me to come in but didn't allow me to watch the game for some reason. Um, so I was kicked out. Um, <laughs> but you, you spoke so passionately at that point about what, you, what value you could add as well. As a white man who'd never had the experiences that I'd had or the people that I serve have. And that hit me, that struck mm. me and that stays with me. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're... Look, I can talk to anybody and say, oh, yeah, I'm friends with that guy or that woman or whoever. But this, that's one of the reasons why I believe and I'd hope that we've stayed friends and can do things like this, which, in, which are going to inform a totally different audience, by the way. Absolutely. And I have attended, I would say, three or four Kick It Out functions. No, and I've attended more, probably... No, no. I say, I, I, I don't know how many I've done, yeah. but, but I've attended three or four where I felt very white. Yeah, and uncomfortably so. Good. Uh, yeah. And to the point where um, I remember sitting down and we had a, uh, we had a little meeting um, with Max, Max, Ru Max, Max Rushton. Yeah. And we almost got a little cabal together in the corner at the end of it and said, are you feeling what I'm feeling? Yeah. And I felt, I don't feel very welcome here tonight. And, I, you know, I'd spoken. Yeah. Um, but it's not a terrible thing. Yeah. to feel a little uncomfortable because it's a bloody uncomfortable subject yeah. and so it should be. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's a very difficult thing to discuss publicly. Um, I hate going on about nowadays because at least we are discussing it yeah. publicly yeah. nowadays, yeah. which we didn't used to do. So I'm I'm no problem with nowadays. I've never been happier in my life. I like 2023 very much indeed. <laughs> so I'm not one of those old people that think that any music after 1980s rubbish or any movie that's made wasn't worth it. I really I'm going to question you about the music. I'm, I'm going to question you I mean, about I the music. I mean, I question you about the music. <laughs> yeah. No. Do you know what's so good about you, though? And, and this is the last one we'll do on this, but yeah. I remember you, I remember asking you to do that event, you know, challenging racism in football. And everyone was going to be there, all the stakeholders, fan groups, like community groups. And I said, can you speak? Said, what am I going to say? And you sent me over this script, right? Do you think this is okay? That Aww. was word perfect, by the way. It was word perfect for the audience. And it was best coming from someone like you as well, if you don't mind me saying that. And I, 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 I'm listening to it because I've read the words already and I'm saying he is spot on. What a perfect way to start the evening. Yeah. And then everyone can discuss the rights and wrongs. It was of, provocative. Yeah. I, I didn't, there's no point in walking into a room and just sending everybody to sleep. You know, you've, <laughs> you've done that, that before, That's by not communicating. We're coming back to the basics, the things that Reg Gottridge mm. gave me. Communication, Brilliant. broadcasting. The clue is in the word, broadcasting. Yeah. Not not talking in little narrow niche groups to each other. That, and, and I think I probably said uh, that night, and it, it, funny enough, I did, um, I, I'm a, a big remainer. So <laughs> I've been involved in some people's votes things and, <laughs> and stuff down, down the years. But I, I remember speaking at a, a, a big get-together in Birmingham and like Michael Hesertine was there on the stage with me, Jesse Phillips, Alistair Campbell and so on. And everybody in the room was a remainer. I said, 
don't it's no good me speaking to yeah. you we've got to speak to the people yeah. who are walking by outside who are going to vote to leave that, that, that we can't have a conversation with each other and that's probably the biggest message that i had Absolutely. last night we're all here because we're convinced yeah. we're convinced that racism is wrong but somehow we've got to come up with a message that we mm. can take out there and effectively win votes but what was so powerful mm. was that you listen know, 100 specially selected people you'd think they were all on the same page. I'm telling you now that they're not all on the same page. So the fact that I've got Clive Tilsley in the front of the stage saying all of this made a lot of people think, by the way, because you're not me. You're not the same color of me. You haven't had the same experiences as me. But actually you were saying, you're slightly different, but you were saying it in a way that I would have said it. For me, wow. That's beautifully said. Do you know what? The only thing I can, I mean, I can't obviously compare, but the one thing that, I think about every time I go to Spurs, I'm a, I'm a Jewish lady. I hate yeah. the chant. Yeah. And I remember my other half is a big Spurs fan. And years ago, when we met, we've been together oh, 16 years. And we went to a game together and he chanted it. And I was like, what are you doing? He's like, what? I said, do you not understand what that word means? Mm. And, he's, and I explained it to him. And he was like, yeah, but none of them are singing it in a racist way. Yeah. And he's like, oh my God, this... It's, it doesn't make it right. And it's not your word to decide whether or not it's racist and or anti-Semitic. And yeah, it's he obviously is he gets it completely now, but it was very much like the people around us are not seeing it to be nasty. They're they're just singing it. It's like, but do they understand what it means? Because if they do, then they yeah, probably I have that are. challenge. I have yeah. that challenge continually. Empathy is walking the shoes of others. Yeah. Yeah. You know, write something on the back of your hand, everybody. Just remember that your view of some... And we are now in a situation, I don't know if it's come from COVID or social media and the um, effect that's had on personal um, uh, meetings and, and so on. People, because it's much, much better when you're all in the room together yeah. looking into, yeah. into each other's eyes. But we've got so much certainty in the world. I mean, I am an old man and I can only tell you the last four years have been the most uncertain years that that my world has ever turned to. You know, um, a, a worldwide pandemic which has killed millions of innocent people, a brutal war on a two hours flight from Heathrow, mm. by the way, in a country that I've visited many, mm. many times before. You know, I've, I've been to uh, Donetsk, I've been to Kharkiv, I've been to these Bakiv, I've been to these places. And uh, what on earth's happening to the economy? Goodness only knows. AI and so on. So how on earth can so many people be, this is my view, and if you don't agree with Stick me, with then yeah. I'm sorry you are the infidel. Yes. Yeah. Where's yes. all this certainty come from in the world? I don't know is very often the very best answer to a question. I don't know, but I'd like to find out is yeah. an even better yeah. answer. Absolutely. And yeah. we've got to actually just take the blinkers off a little bit and listen to each other a bit more. Yeah, I listen. In the, in the same sense, you said, and we've stated, and you've stated just now, right? You know, you've never had my experiences, so you don't mm. know, you know, how you would feel and all that. But you're going for a period in your career where actually, I'm not saying that you're going through something where it's uncertain, isn't it? Because since 2020, your voice has kind of been eliminated from our listening pleasure, as I would say. I'm very frustrated that I don't get more employment than I'm getting. Um, and that is probably as strong as I would want to go mm. because I have been so fortunate. 
I do believe in opportunity. Maybe there's a view out there that he's had his time and it's time that somebody else did it. I personally would prefer to hear, I'm sorry, he's not as good as he used to be. Yeah. Uh, you know, get over it and get on with it. I'm not hearing that. Um, so it's a bit of a mystery to me as to why I'm available as a freelance broadcaster and I do relatively little work, very little work that most of your listeners would be aware of. I mean, I cover Champions League for the US network, CBS, but uh, you have to break the law to be able to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> There's surprising how many people do. Um, but, yeah, I mean, um, I do a little bit of work for Talk Sport. Um, I do – when Amazon Prime um, have uh, Premier League, which is only – two weekends a year, I'll do some work for them. And ITV still use me um, as the kind of second, as it happened at the World Cup, third commentator on their roster. Um, So whilst um, I was taken aback, shocked, hurt, when ITV told me in 2020 that they were replacing me, um, I had no big problem with that in so much that we are a matter of opinion. And if you think you found a, a commentator who can do the job better than I can, I can't argue against that. Sam Matterface is an experienced and good commentator. If you think he's better than me, that's cool. It hurts a bit, mm. um, but I'll, I'll have to live with that. Um, but <laughs> to to go from you know that position to kind of where I am today, where um, I would like to work an awful lot more than I am doing. Mm where when I do work, I still get quite a good reception and good press, where I still care as much about the job and do as much preparation as ever before. Um, I don't like to complain, but yeah. why? Yeah. That World Cup you talk about in 2022, there was a duo, you and Ali McCoist, that if we're talking about public opinion, were the best two voices mm-hmm. in terms of not just how you describe the game, but the way you connect and... Yeah. You know, just your your kind of commentary on the games that you were on. Clive Tilsley, Ali McCoys, where are they? We need them. They're the ones. You went home before the quarterfinals. Yeah, Ali stayed to the end. Ali um, stayed, And yeah. Ali is outstanding with other people too. Yeah. Um, there's no question about that. Um, I go back a long way with Ali. We've got a really good personal relationship. And I think that shows on air. I care very much about his... Um, his image as a broadcaster, and I speak to him a lot about how he portrays himself, not Mm. as a mentor or anything, but just as a a mate giving him some advice Mm. not to become too comedic, um, not to become a light entertainer. Yeah, yeah, Because his credentials Mm. as a football analyst are as strong as anybody's. Uh, He has that warmth that we were talking about. He has that wonderful common touch, that ability to communicate with people who watch football on any level. And when you are talking about a big World Cup game, then you're talking about the biggest football nuts in the country watching it, but you're also talking about your Uncle Ernie and and your Auntie Frieda uh, who are watching one game a year. Mm-hmm. And Ali can reach everybody, yeah. and, and he is brilliant. And that's, that's not because of me, but it, I think it works pretty well when he is with me. We very rarely work together. I mean... Again, it's a selection issue. It's like being, you know, I'm sure Romelu Lukaku thinks he should be 
in the first yeah, 11 yeah. for Inter at the moment, yeah. but he's not getting selected. I'm not getting selected. I'm not getting selected to play with Ali McCoyst. <laughs> um, I say I'm frustrated about it, but I can't... It, it would be senseless for me to be up in arms about it because it is, it is a matter is. of opinion. Yeah. And I have had a good innings. It's just, I'd still like to make a few more runs. Yeah, to carry on. You actually said earlier before we start recording that... Obviously, you know, as a as a white man in the industry, you've never really you've never experienced a prejudice, but all of a sudden you feel a bit like this ageism is perhaps. Yeah, I don't know if that's what it is. Yeah. I don't know if that's what it is. Yeah. I could understand why somebody wouldn't wouldn't want to give a sixty eight year old man an eight year contract, but I I you mean might get one the, at Chelsea. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, oh. just only for financial fair play. <laughs> no, I would like to work more. I mean, I think every weekend. Of Premier League football, there are 10 games. Um, they are covered by probably, you know, the, the host broadcaster Sky or BT Sport, uh, soon to be TNT Sport. Uh, Match of the Day will have a commentator there. The English Language World Feed, PLP, will have a commentator there. NBC America. Um, the Irish broadcasters will have a commentator there. Then you've got Five Live and you've got Talk Sport. So... How many commentators are working on Premier League football each weekend? I mean, even if s several are doing two games over the weekend, it must be 40 or 50. Well, I am very vain. Everybody in my business is very vain. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> I am not vain enough to say I'm the best, but I'm in the top friggin' 40. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's true. I'd go short, but anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, whatever. Yeah, but I, I, yeah I... I mean, I, I don't ask Troy, am I difficult to work with? Because I know what the answer will be. Maybe it's that. <laughs> so what's, what's next for you? What kind of jobs are you working on right now? And, you know, what do you... I've got one game left this season, which is yeah. the Champions League final for the Americans, which is three weeks away as we speak. Um, I watch all the football. I keep records and all the appearances and all that stuff. I love watching football. I want to be across it. Um... I haven't got my own podcast yet. Okay. Oh. I, Interesting. It wouldn't be my own podcast. I am trying to put something together with a couple of people, which hopefully would appear next season. Mm. We have our little commentary charts business, which is good. Um, I did a, a Clark, book. Sorry, give us a little bit more on the commentary charts. Yeah. Uh, commentarycharts.com, it's self-explanatory. If um, To us it is, but... Yeah, if you want a memento of one of your favourite team's big games, there's half a chance you'll find commentary notes, which are a print of the research notes that I have in front of me before kickoff with all the players and all the information, the scores. It's kind of a nice thing for the downstairs loo or the office or the man cave, <laughs> the woman cave. Um, and it, th these occasions are very big moments in people's lives. They are kind of reference points in people's lives. You know, mm. where, where were you the day that? Mm. Um, yeah, and a lot of those are sporting events. Mm. And if, if that sporting event is close to you, um, you know, we we recently produced a, a chart for the Bolton Wanderers versus Plymouth Argyle Papa John's Trophy final. Now there'll be an awful lot of people listening go, shrugging their shoulders yeah. saying, what was all about? about? I'll tell you what it was about. Um, best part of 30,000 people travelled from each of those yeah. 
to communities. Great atmosphere. To be at Wembley together to celebrate being from Bolton, and I'm very nearly from Bolton, or being from Plymouth. Yeah. And, and that is very, very special. If a religion or political party could harness that power, mm. it would be a very, very dangerous entity. Football does that in a way mm. nothing else does. So a memento of that day, just something which says, ah, I was there, and then to tell your own stories about it is, I think, kind of quite a nice thing. So we have that. I, I wrote a book in the first lockdown, which was yeah generally well received. It wasn't um, an autobiography. Uh, I wrote every word, but it was more about the people that I've been very privileged to meet, the very special, extraordinary people um, in football, from Bill Shankly and Brian Clough and Sir Alec Ferguson right through to Gareth Southgate, who in his way is as extraordinary as any of them. Um, there's a chapter on racism, yeah, uh, as no. you're, you're, yeah. you're aware. Um, uh, some of the great broadcasters and what I've learned about communication from them. So it is actually quite a general kind of book. And, um, yeah, something like that I'd, I'd, I'd maybe quite like to do again if I had the time. I'm doing some lecturing now uh, for university undergraduates, um, particularly at UA92, which is, if you like, Gary Neville's university. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, so, yeah, I mean, there are lots of things of that nature mm. that um, that I will still occupy my time, but I'd like to do some more yeah. commentaries. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Get your teeth into some more commentaries. That's what I am. Yeah, I can't put it's your shells identity. up. It's you. Yeah, like, like this man here that can apparently put shells up. Yeah, and I suppose I creating your own thing, like if you do your own podcast, it's yours. No one can take that away from you. That's what I think about creating your own thing and mm. being in control of your own thing. Then there's a, ve a very, very good podcast uh, called "The Rest Is Politics." I, I do, I, I do take an interest in, and people should take more interest in the people that are governing you. Mm -hmm. Do not become apathetic to. Um, to government and yeah. so um, I have strong views which I needn't necessarily share uh, on here but the rest is politics is a lovely um, uh, partnership between Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart have both been out there in the field you know R Rory is an MP Alistair as you know spin doctor to Prime Minister um, and the essentially from opposite sides of the spectrum, although it's amazing how close they are. And there is some middle ground out there to be found in most areas. Um, and I'd, I'd like to do a, a podcast about our beloved sport along the same lines. That amazing. sounds wonderful. Amazing. Well, Clive, thank you for joining thank us today. You. It's been an absolute pleasure. It really, really has. Um, yeah, it's nice. Some great to have. insight, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. He can talk is, is, better than is, you. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> talk more that. than you. He can talk more than me. Better. Yeah, I'm not so sure. Yeah, definitely more. But yeah. um, that's why I was desperate. Well, we were desperate to get him on with us. So really yeah. great insight, and thank you for sharing some nuggets with us. I, honestly, it's the easiest fifteen thousand pounds ever. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Plus, uh, plus, uh, plus travel. VA, plus travel and yeah. VAT. Oh, yeah. Okay. We pay well here. I we do. Flew from New York today. You know that. <laughs> okay. Fine. It's fine. <laughs> Business. Yeah. Absolutely fine. Um, brilliant. Well, look. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to uh, Behind the Dugout. Uh, you can catch us on all the usual uh, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast. We're over on social media as well. And Clive, thank you. 
Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to follow and subscribe to Behind the Dugout Podcast. And find us on Instagram at Behind the Dugout Podcast for announcements and exclusive video clips from here in the studio. We'll see you next time. Behind the Dugout Podcast. Powered by Paramex Digital.